Hello and welcome to the Plus One podcast, where we discuss diversity and inclusion in our workplaces at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Meta Purnada, Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. In this episode, we host Tava Olson, Professor of Operations in Supply Chain Management and Deputy Dean Academic Melbourne Business School. I talked to Tava about strategic initiatives that address diversity and inclusion matters at Melbourne Business School. Specifically, we talk about gender equity and equal opportunities in the classroom and outside of classroom at Melbourne Business School. This episode was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Tava. How are you? I'm very good. Good to be here. Good to see you again. I remember the first time I saw you, I was doing my PhD 10 years ago almost, or less. And then there was a um, operation supply chain management conference in uh, Auckland, University of Auckland, that you were hosting. And I attended the conference and it was great. I had a really good time. And it was the first time I, I met you and I knew about your profile. And then it's amazing that you joined us recently and we are in the same institution. Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of work organizing that conference, but uh, I think it was worth it. I could imagine. And you are our first uh, guest with operations and supply chain management uh, background, which I think is fantastic. Yes, I think we can give more profile to ops and supply chain. That'd yes. That'd be great. <laughs> that would be awesome, actually. Firstly, tell me, how have you been dealing with this weather? <laughs> Suddenly we're having winter in Melbourne again. Like It's winter, but it's very cold these days. Yeah, it's kind of cold. And actually, shortly after I moved here, and it was still cold, and that was back in October last year, I actually went and looked at a map and realized that we're one degree further south than Auckland. So, you know, that explains some of the cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, as we have been talking before the podcast, uh, the weather, especially the last year, has been a bit weird. So we had a uh, colder than usual summer, and we are going through ups and downs. Uh, in winter, some days are cold, some days are hot. And, well, we are in Melbourne. We can't yeah, – this is expected, I guess. But Yeah, and even though it's cold, it's not U.S. cold. I mean, I did spend six years in Michigan, you know. That's cold. We actually had um, – uh, Professor Taluri, Siri Taluri, uh, with us uh, a, a month ago, two months ago, and then we were we were talking about winters, and he's from Michigan State, uh, and yeah, he was telling us winter in Melbourne is very mild compared to in the US and in the Michigan. So, so I'm glad in a way. Again, welcome to the podcast, and um, it's lovely to have you. And um, I think um, as the deputy head of school at Melbourne Business School, if I'm not... Deputy Dean. Deputy Dean. Yeah. It is a great privilege to have you. And also, as the focus of the podcast is on diversity and inclusion, um, it would be great to get your insights overall um, on the topic um, from a personal perspective in your role at Melbourne Business School. And where we are headed to. So, um, but if you don't mind, I'll start 
with a bit of your background in operation supply chain. And um, um, I also was uh, listening to your interview on Melbourne Business School's website that you talked about the three E's, <clears throat> excellence, engagement, and equity. And I would love to explore further on how it manifests at Melbourne Business School now and in the future with respect to diversity and inclusion. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, a bit about my background. Um, I grew up in Auckland, and then I went to the US to do my PhD at Stanford, um, and that was in what was then the Operations Research Department in the Engineering School at Stanford. Um, and so, my first academic job was at an engineering school. It was in uh, the University of Michigan Industrial Operations Engineering Department, um, and then. While I was there, I realized that business was a much better fit both for my teaching and my research interests. Uh, so I moved to Olin Business School, which is in Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, and I was there for about 10 years. And then at that point, my daughters were six and nine, so it was time to head back to Auckland. Um, so I headed back partly because of my daughters and partly because of the role. I took up the directorship of the Center for Supply Chain Management when I headed back. Uh, so, yeah, I, I moved back to Auckland. Now my daughters are done with high school, so I moved here to take up the deputy dean role. That's awesome. Uh, are your daughters here or back in back in New Zealand? Back in New Zealand. So the older one's working at PwC and the younger one's studying psychology and sociology at University of Auckland. Great. Fantastic. And now in the new role in Melbourne Business School, how do you find it? How is it, um, everything going, if, if you don't mind sharing with us? Sure, I'm really enjoying the new role. Um, there's a lot of autonomy to the role. There's a lot of ability to get on and herd those cats that are faculty, but, you know, actually make a difference, hopefully make a positive difference to faculty. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we've already put in a new workload model, so that was uh, an achievement, I think, and, and hopefully, again, makes faculty's lives a bit better. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the opportunities. Fantastic. Um, sounds great. So with respect to diversity and inclusion at Melbourne Business School, we have had two guests so far, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, have been talking about the topic, Tegan and KK, from different perspectives. But as a deputy dean, um, I would I would assume that you are, um, you are at the involved with the overall strategic initiatives with respect to diversity and inclusion. Um, if so, would you mind sharing those perspectives with us, where we are at, where we are going to be in the future, and then we'll take the conversation from that. Sure. So I think there's much more awareness these days of the importance of diversity and inclusion. And from a strategic perspective, often it's setting the processes, the, you know, how we measure, but also the culture, the climate, just being aware of of the need to be inclusive is we're better, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, when a lot of the focus has been uh, recently at MBS has been around gender equity, um, because we do have significant challenges in that regard. Uh, there was a fair bit of work done before I joined. There was a an action plan made. There was also a group that worked together with FBE and Melbourne Business School to come up with a bit of a strategic plan. Um, but we're still on the journey. Uh, one of the biggest achievements out of out of that plan, I think, was our new 
mentoring program for junior faculty. Um, I'm a big believer in mentoring and particularly uh, for women uh, and other people who may be a bit marginalised. I think there's huge benefit in actually having a formal mentoring program rather than just assuming that the people are going to get the mentoring that they need. That's amazing. Um, I personally have, um, have asked one of the senior members of the um, the faculty to to be my mentor, but it wasn't, or at least as I know, at, at our faculty is not a program. Or my I might be mistaken, <laughs> but how does this mentoring, formal mentoring, work? And what do you think are going to be the outcomes of this program moving forward? So I might step back a bit and just sort of talk a little bit about my first experience with mentoring, which was when I was at University of Michigan, we had no formal mentoring program. Um, And I actually lobbied for us to get a formal program, me as a little assistant professor. Uh, I I got assigned a mentor. Uh, I got uh, what I thought were terrible referee reports from Management Science, which is one of the top journals. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to have to send this somewhere else. Uh, but I had a mentor. So, you know, because some, I had a mentor, I thought, oh, I can show them the reports and the paper and he can advise me on what to do next. What he came back with was, Tava, these reports are not that bad. You should be resubmitting. You know, this is this is not a reject and go away. This is just a sort of normal set of reports that you just need to do what they're asking. And I was just so inexperienced. I just didn't know that. So, yeah, I did. I followed his advice. Um, He gave great advice around writing the introduction. I remember he circled one paragraph and said, Tava, you're asking the reviewers to reject your paper here, you know, (laughs) because it was just written in a, you know, not in a confident style. Um, And so I followed his advice. I revised. I think there was probably another round. um, And that was my first management science paper. And it was entirely because... I had a formal mentor that I felt like it was sort of his job to help me because I never would have actually asked him to do it, even though there's, he probably would have said yes anyway. But it's, it just didn't feel like something I could ask for until I had a formal mentor assigned. Um, so when I was at Olin Business School, I also int- um, introduced a mentoring program at Auckland. I did too. Uh, and then here at Olin, that was I mean here at um, Melbourne Business School, uh, it was already well underway. Um, so yeah, so we do have a very formal program. Our um, it covers both teaching and research, um, but it's actually run by our associate dean teaching and learning. Um, in terms of, it's quite structured. We've got a PowerPoint that that like outlines all the uh, expectations, and we actually give a small amount of teaching relief for the mentors uh, in the very start of the relationship. Although the relationship's supposed to go for multiple years. That's amazing. And um, except for teaching and learning, which is absolutely necessary, are the mentors uh, going to, for example, have um, special advice to those marginalized communities? Um, like LGBTQI plus communities with neurodiversity, still though, it, speci- specifically in our field, operation supply chain management, for example, to women who are still not um, the numbers are not as equal as men. Um, are there any topics that are covered uh, as topics that can be discussed formally with mentors and mentees? 
those sessions? So mostly it's teaching and research. Um, I suspect, you know, many of our faculty are not that qualified to give advice. I think probably we should be doing more uh, in those areas in terms of identifying people who are actually comfortable having those conversations. Um, but, yeah, at, the, at this point, the mentoring program really does stick to research and teaching. Um, and it's more important to kind of match up someone in the discipline so they can give that research advice. Um, and ideally, the mentor sits in on their class as well, so they sort of get a, um, up and running with their teaching. Uh, but that's where it is at this point, but at least we have that Absolutely, that yeah. and I think it's a great start to have that. Um, just to clarify, I think at FBE Faculty of Business Economics, we have um, the peer mentoring for teaching um, specifically, but uh, I don't think I'm aware of any formal mentoring program. Again, I might be mistaken. Um, so you mentioned something about gender equity as part of the strategic initiatives of Melbourne Business School. Can you please elaborate if it is about the uh, MBA students, is it about um, the faculty or both, and how it works overall as, as the initiative? Uh, at this point, it's mostly focused on faculty. Um, we do have some scholarships as ways to try and encourage a higher percentage of women. Um, as you may know, MBA programs usually don't have uh, equal numbers, and ours don't either. Um, it's actually our senior executive MBA that's one of the better ones, get 40%, um, but, you know, it's still not 50-50, uh, which, you know, it makes for much richer classroom discussions if you can have diversity in the classroom, both in terms of equity but in terms of other groups as well. Um, so, yeah, at this point our focus is more on faculty because we also are challenged there. Our percentages are not where we would like them to be. Um, and so one of the things that happened before I joined uh, was a change in our hiring processes. And that's actually been a bit interesting because we went to a blinded process for the first round screening and I think we're actually going to move away from that because I don't think it's actually been helpful. Because if you think about, for example, a woman's CV, if she has children, there's going to be a gap there, exactly. right? But if you've blinded it completely, all you see is the, the gap and not any sort of explanation. So, so, yeah, I'm not convinced that the blinded reviewing has actually improved our equity. Yeah, it's a it's a double-edged sword sometimes, right? I I, rem I have heard of this study where uh, some researchers send out um, their CV with a with a really um, Western name compared to a CV the same CV with a name that is not very Western, and then the Western the, the name that looked, for example John Smith um, that sounded Western had got more interview invitations so um, I think I think that was research somewhere but but also as you mentioned if it is completely blind and then if there are gaps for example if you're a woman with children or for any reason um, because of your gender or because of any other considerations you had those gaps then if it's completely blind then it might might not be a complete fair process to the person being assessed. Yeah. So we're still trying to think hard about, you know, is there a balance there and, and what we should do? Because I've seen some of those studies too, and they're pretty clear that there's a lot of implicit bias out there just based on names. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you completely. Um, 
So moving on from that, um, what other initiatives are you personally passionate about at Melbourne Business School or overall at the university or um, that you have that you want to promote further or you want to have in the future? So a relatively minor one, but I am quite passionate about, is changing how we measure teaching. Um, so at the moment, our measures of teaching are largely around the scores that the students give. And, you know, there's huge amount of research now showing just how biased those score, scores can be. Um, not just on gender, on, on other ones too, but there was a fascinating study that was gender-based where it was an online class uh, so they actually flipped the names of the instructors. So there were four sections, two that were taught by the man, two that were taught by the woman. But if all the interactions were online, um, so the students couldn't actually tell who they were interacting with. So for they, they switched two of the sections. And, you know, the, the, the students who thought they were being taught by the man gave significantly higher teaching ratings, even though, you know, half of them were being taught by that by the woman. So, and even on things that are in theory objective, like timeliness of, of um, returning the assignments, you know, it's like, that, that should be objective, but it's not. So we rely far too much on these uh, teaching ratings. Um, and so, what we what we're trying to do is introduce other measures, but also more peer review of of teaching. And I know FBE does does peer review of teaching, which is great. Um, and it, you know, it's figuring out how to do that peer review that is both uh, developmental, so it helps the person teaching, but also evaluative, so that we can try and get a richer view of somebody's teaching performance. I think that's great, and we all acknowledge that. Some of, not all, but some of the assessments taken from the students are biased. And we might have, um, and to be fair to any person that might have those implicit biases, they might not be aware of it. But I could totally imagine and I acknowledge that there have been research showing that, um, that men overall or average um, or middle-aged men looking like a professor which is which comes into your mind as a typical professor who has got a beard glasses middle-aged man uh might have i'm not saying they do necessarily all the time but might have better chances of higher student assessments compared to for example someone like me um who looks international woman a bit younger uh but the good thing about me is that I have those glasses, so <laughs> I am hoping that that would that would help a bit with the assessments. But then again, I saw that in the assessments of my class, or and I have been seeing that um, consistently since I've been teaching at MBA and postgrad levels. Um, but this semester, I was talking to to my teaching team uh, after we got the student assessments. So. It was myself, a female, and two male teaching fellows of our departments, and they're quite experienced. But we are same age, um, and I was the subject coordinator, so I coordinated the content and the, the delivery style, and so on and so forth. And we had to make some changes, moving from online to on campus and in person. Long story short, when we got the assessments. 
and I was reading through the comments by other students. Uh, overall, it was good, good assessment, um, but it was fascinating to me um, that my name uh, was mentioned only once to thank me <laughs> as the lecturer and, and my teaching fellows, uh, the two the two fellows that uh, we have been teaching together, they have been mentioned multiple times. And I was telling them I'm jealous. <laughs> I want my name to be there at least once more. But you can't, I mean, it can be my teaching style, to be fair, but you can't help but thinking, is it because I'm a woman? Um, I might have that a bit of accent, uh, but, or not, or how much of it is, is because of that? Uh, so I always wonder about that in my own teaching evaluations. And and I think that's what makes it so challenging is all the intersectionality in terms of, you know, it's not just a gender thing, it's a background, it's a race, it's, you know, all of the sort of percept... Because these ratings are so perception-based, it's how do you present yourself um, and, you know, can you actually bring your authentic person into the classroom, there's very few people who can actually do that successfully um, and wholly and feel comfortable. Um, so certainly I know when I teach, I do hold some of myself back, right? It's, it's, mm. yeah. Well, why do you do that? Like what, what aspects? It's it's to project that professional image that's so important. You know, you have to you have to own that classroom. So so you just walk in, and I too have the glasses. Um, you know, helps. <laughs> and often, you know, when I was younger, particularly, I'd often I'd usually wear my hair up at least for the first class or two. Um, and yeah, it's it's so hard to judge. As does it make a difference? I mean, how do you scientifically test whether this is actually making a difference or whether this is just your own exactly. uh, perception? It's it's super challenging. Um, and so I just think we need to put much less weight on these because there is so much noise in, in what goes into those evaluations. And I do think one of the big differences is that women do need to walk a much narrower line in terms of student expectations. So women can do extremely well, but, you know, if they deviate from those expectations of the, of what the students have, it can be quite challenging. Absolutely. Not to mention, um, when I was teaching MBA in Macquarie, um, I remember I had this chat with another professor there, um, very seasoned professor. She, she was talking to me about her experiences um, as a female professor, and she was telling me one difference that she noticed while teaching MBAs was that the expectation of the MBAs or any any cohort of students, I'm not singling out MBAs specifically here, is for a woman to sh to be nurturing, to to show those attitudes of femininity. Uh, but for males, it's more like being assertive and, um, I don't know, um, being serious. Or, But what if I'm a female and I want, to, I want to be like that? I want to make dad jokes in class. I want to be my authentic self. But as you mentioned, is it going to align with the expectation, with the norms, with those implicit biases that we might have? And she told me that, I have learned earlier in my career that the expectation from me is that, and I have been trying to change that in my classes as much as I can. She has been to some extent successful. But then again, um, most of the times it's an uphill battle. Um, 
uh, one other thing was that when I uh, like six seven years ago when I was te- when I was teaching MBA um, and I was much younger than I am uh, and you know when you when you first start teaching um, you already and especially for women I think that might be the case you have that imposter syndrome you think do I deserve <laughs> to go to this class and teach uh, is it is it the reality that I'm experiencing right now and how are the others are going to perceive me and I remember as a as a young lecturer what I try to do is to over present myself and my abilities and um and if if I remember if the dynamic of the classroom was good and the students were were accepting me and I felt that they did the class went well but I have had classes that the student cohort didn't accept me very well and then the class didn't didn't go very well and then I thought oh okay maybe because I'm young or maybe because I'm just a uh, just not confident enough and I don't exude that confidence enough but all I'm trying to say is that being a female and experiencing that um, it has been a learning curve for me at least um, to to be trying to cope with that and it's great and really encouraging to hear that the assessments of teaching are moving toward triangulating all those data and experiences and to 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 come up with something that correspond to the reality of the lecture, the, uh, the background of the lecture and those biases and to capture those biases in the classroom. Because we use, for, for example, for the audience who might not be familiar, we use those teaching assessments for um, our promotions. We use them to, to show that we have made progress. We are doing good, high-quality teaching. And that's very important at the university or any kind of um, um, any any other universities across Australia. So, no, that's amazing. That's an amazing initiative. Yeah, thanks. And I agree that, you know, the teaching ratings are important because, you know, it does matter how our students are learning, how they're perceiving, you know, so we can't just ignore them. And as you said, it's more about triangulating them, Um and I, I had a similar experience to you, you know, when I first started teaching MBAs uh, back in Olin because, you know, it's pre-tenure, these things, these evals feed into your uh, promotion decisions. And so I was nervous. And so, of course, when you're nervous, the teaching doesn't go well. So it's a bit of this vicious cycle in terms of, uh, yeah, how do, you, how do you not be nervous uh, when it matters so much? Absolutely. And, for example... I, I personally felt that whenever I felt comfortable enough to be myself, things went much better um, compared to whenever I just wanted to show that I'm good enough to to fit in. And I think, but but there is also, as you mentioned, for women especially, there is a narrow line, like how much comfortable can you be um so nah nah absolutely i agree with you but still i think we we are uh, we are using the assessments that are basically score based and um we are using those on, on our side of the faculty um that's great so um what else, Tava? What what other kinds of initiatives are you guys working on, or are you personally passionate about? Not only at MBS, but also in supply chain and operations management. Um, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that too. But 
let's let's just focus on MBS for now and then we'll move on to our field. Sure. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, our, our faculty um, isn't as uh, gender balanced as we, as we would like. Um, so we are trying to do initiatives just to improve the culture, just make it a, a more pleasant place to be there. Um, you know, we haven't done anything with with our uh, faculty families since I've been there and that's definitely on my agenda once this weather starts improving. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. is, is whether we can actually do something in terms of, um, you know, an event that, that involves family because I think that's one thing we need to get better at. Um, so you mean inviting the families? Yeah, inviting the families to some sort of picnic, etc. So just, you know, an informal but just social getting people together, but also embracing the fact that people have um, families and, you know, everyone has different living situations. Um, and can we can we actually make ourselves a little more social? Uh, the corridor where our faculty are at MBS is very quiet. So one of our challenges is, is how do we get more faculty back in the office, but without mandating it? Um, so um, we've got challenges there in terms of just making it a more pleasant place to work, you know, and and so if you have any bright ideas on how <laughs> on how to how to do that, I think we are we are facing the same issue at in in our faculty as well in, in the spot building that um, the rate of the academics visiting campus has declined um, during COVID and after, um, and the dean actually Paul Kaufman sent a message um, a year ago, I think encouraging everyone to come back but um you cannot make people do that right you have to encourage them but uh to me personally uh i, I live close by and every day i'm here <laughs> uh and then i see people and i i like to i like to be surrounded by people but i understand that as an academic for example sometimes you really want to sit down at your desk at home and work on that pressing idea on the paper, research paper or something like that. But no, nah, I don't have any ideas. <laughs> that would that would help unfortunately. No, yeah. I think I think it's a challenge for a lot of academic institutions. So yes, I try to come in, but um you know, it's difficult, right? Um, yeah. So, yes. then, so then another thing we've been doing is revising our parental leave policy. Um, I know FBE's revised yeah. theirs, so we're revising our, our one in line with that. Um, and and how would that look like? So it's giving more teaching relief um, after the baby is born. But, um, you know, when I started in academia, there were very, very few parental leave policy so it's so it's actually been really good to see these develop um one of the one of the things i'm a little passionate about though is that i do think these parental leave policies need to be written uh, to give more benefits to primary caregiver um, there's actually a really interesting paper done by economists that study it's a US-based one that study uh, parental leave policies that are gender blind and and primary caregiver blind. So, um, and they actually showed that they make things worse for women because you know so many junior faculty will be become a parent, and so if the standard is to actually extend the tenure clock by one year for everybody, then women who particularly you know if they've they've actually birthed the baby, you know there's 
huge productivity loss during pregnancy. And then, of course, after the baby's born, huge productivity loss. I mean, even nursing, you know, it's it's exhausting. It's time consuming. Absolutely. Um, and so that extra year on the tenure clock in the U.S. system is really important. But if everybody is everybody just about everybody's getting it then it actually makes the tenure hurdle higher because people have one more year to be publishing those papers um so no reason it has to be gender based but i do think it has to be primary care primary up. care absolutely yeah. and it's it's not a joke like taking care of a newborn takes a lot of time out, outside of one schedule not to mention Emotionally, also, it affects the person uh, as well, and the exhaustion of it, and all that affects affects the um, the productivity. And also, I mean, in in the US, it's one year extra. Not to mention, at least in our field, if you want to publish in a good journal, at least it takes one and a half, two years, at least, to multiple years. I've got a colleague. Uh, that has got a paper in pipeline to be published in a really good journal that has been nine years into making. So uh, one could just imagine. Yeah. I have a paper in operations research that took 10 years all at the same journal. (laughs) So I just kept sending it back. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The perseverance in our our job is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But how how is this... um, primary care, new pa- new incentives, is it, how is it going to look like and how is it going to change, if, to, if you don't mind me asking? So this one is much more about um, teaching relief rather than um, extending clocks, etc., like the sticky, the U.S. tenure system, which is just so strict. Um, so, yeah, so it's reducing the teaching while the person is still working full time, so they'll have more time to spend on their research. Fantastic. No, that's great. Um I believe that Melbourne Business School uh, prides itself in its engagement with industry. Um, and um, we had some chat with Tegan about, Tegan Donnelly, about, about that aspect of um, Melbourne Business School and diversity inclusion considerations in, in uh, internships and in placement of individuals uh, into workplace opportunities and uh, basically... Communicate, communicating those considerations with the industry. From your perspective, in um, MBS engagement with industry, um, what aspects of diversity and inclusion um, are considered at MBS? What aspects do you see that the industry is emphasizing on? And how do you think it affects teaching and learning at MBS? Sure. Um, So one of the things we do at MBS is we have our Dean's Leadership Forum, uh, where we have someone who's interviewed by the Dean, and there's a whole group of um, people listening. Uh, And so we do try and ensure diversity, both in terms of the people who are invited to be interviewed as part of uh, that forum, but also in terms of who we invite to be in the room. Um, so it's a little bit easier. We always try and invite a handful of our students, so it's a little bit easier to ensure uh, diversity of our students rather than our um, alumni and, and industry members. Um, but it's it, we're, it's an active consideration in terms of making sure 
as much as we can that the people invited into the room are a diverse set because that really is a responsibility. As you say, we do a lot of engagement. Um, so it's not just Dean Le- Dean's Leadership Forum, but that's one example. Um, and so I think we really do have a responsibility as a facilitator of engagement um, to try and make sure that we have diverse people in the room. Absolutely. And um, I would assume that slowly it would reflect on, uh, which is, I think it's hard, but I think the discourse has started that those topics of diversity inclusion, um, as well as, for example, the topics of sustainability that has been for some time now included in the curriculum, um, in in business schools, um, how do you think that has progressed so far and how do you think it will go in the future? Uh, so I think where it particularly intersects in, in business schools is in the leadership discipline. Um, so there's now quite a lot of research around leadership styles and how to be a successful leader um, from a diversity and inclusion perspective. Um, the fact that people do have, have very different styles depending on their backgrounds and yet can actually be successful leaders. I think that's uh, much more acknowledged now. Uh, so we do actually have a variety of um, specialised leadership programs. Um, so we have uh, the Mara program, for example, looking at Indigenous leadership. Uh, and then we also have a couple of, we have Women in Leadership as a short course, Senior Women in Leadership as, a, as another short course. Um, so... Uh, we we also sponsor the Blue Nile program, which is uh, for African Australians, um, and again, it's a leadership focused program. Um, so, I think the more we can talk about, there are many types of leaders, many styles of leaders, um, and you know, there's a richness that various aspects of diversity can actually bring to leadership. Um, I think again, that's a bit of a responsibility we have as MBS. Absolutely. And it's it's encouraging to hear that we have all those support schemes for different groups of uh, relatively mi- minority groups to be able to to continue with their MBA studies. Um, now, I want to move on a, a bit into a more um, passionate topic of mine, which is in supply chain and operations management. And we, we share that uh, um, as a topic that we research on and we have worked on. Um, overall, in our field, Taba, considering your years of experience in the field and being a senior person in Australia and New Zealand in operations supply chain management and overall globally, uh, how do you think our field looks like? Uh, how diverse is it? Is it? How diverse um, are those um, top people in our field? And uh, is there a room for improvement? Well, there's definitely room for improvement. Um, it's, but it's having said that, it's better <laughs> than it used to be. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that's you know a huge measure of success. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's very definite uh, room for improvement. Um, one of the things we started in Auckland as part of the Centre for Supply Chain uh, Management was we started a women in supply chain um, group. Uh, and there were large numbers of young women working in supply chains. So that was kind of exciting to see because um, the group was started 
as a joint effort between the centre and then a number of senior supply chain women um, in New Zealand. So they were used to being kind of the only woman in the room um, and that that is changing. Um, and so I think what companies should be doing is making sure that their work environments are a, a place where people feel like they can make a difference, they can belong, they are included and, and there are still challenges there um, across all forms of diversity because it's still very much, you know, white, straight, male uh, field. Yeah, um, I agree with you. <laughs> um, even, I mean, my experience is that even uh, in terms of uh, just academically speaking, the top journals in our field, they, um, they, the editorial boards of the journals are very not diverse, although some journals are starting the movement. I'm not going to name any names, but like in a praise, actually, because I know some top journals in our field are starting to consider have a more diverse editorial board. Um, and also uh, there have been publications that I've seen about gender equity, women in supply chain, as you mentioned, we, uh, at least in Australia, I mean, it, it is... Uh, we see an increasing number of women, for example, in our massive supply chain management program, but still it is in favor of men. But that's one aspect of diversity and inclusion. There are so many other groups that, that you, would, you would like to include and would like to be there. But yeah, I mean, um, still, though, you can just feel that supply chain operations is quite um, in favor of males, which I do not have anything against, but... You and I both wanted to for more females to be included, especially on topper levels in industry and also in academia from from different backgrounds, different regions around the globe, um, at least in academia. Uh, now that's great. Yeah. So our um, society, main society informs Institute for Operations Research and Management Science runs many of the top journals, as you know. Um, and they have now for a few years at least been measuring the diversity of their editorial boards and publishing it. So you can actually go to a public-facing website and look at, um, I believe they have race-based, they have gender-based, I'm not, I think they look at region as well. Um, so, you know, they've, the numbers don't look great, but I think by at least measuring and making public, there becomes a bit more of awareness in terms of the need to improve. Um, and uh, the appointment is hasn't been announced yet, so I can't say anything, but one of our very good journals is about to get their very first ever uh, female editor-in-chief. And no, it's not me, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is it Tava? Is it <laughs> That sounds awesome. So that's exciting. That's yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I need to I need to Google <laughs> after this podcast to see which journal that might be. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, in terms of... Uh, so, because this podcast is going to be a public podcast and... Um, in terms of engagement of people who are listening to the podcast within university, outside of university, uh, with any diversity and inclusion related initiatives at MBS, as 
prospective MBA students or as members of public who want to be involved, uh, are there any initiatives there out there that you would recommend, you would suggest for them to be involved? Well, we're always looking for uh, sponsorship of our scholarships, for example, to, to, I mean, I know that's a huge ask um, <laughs> and probably not someone something that someone's going to jump in with, mm. but maybe there's a corporation that's looking to, you know, uh, improve the diversity of who they can hire, right? So one way you can do that is to make sure that there's actually more uh, graduating students who have the profile that, that you're looking for as a company. So um, obviously, again, that sort of direct assistance is a large ask, um, but there's lots more volunteer-type um, roles one could one could imagine. You know, um, we have, for example, guest lectures. So, you know, if you are someone who's from a typically underrepresented group um, and working in a field whether it's supply chain or finance, you know, it's it's great to be able to get you, if we're talking to the person out there, uh, in front of our cohorts so they can just see someone who looks a little bit different um, and has a different background. Mm. Great. Fantastic. And uh, this is the final question that I, I ask all our guests. How do you think the future looks like? I'm an optimist. So, yeah, I, I mean, I've, and I've also seen huge improvements in my lifetime over my career. The awareness of the importance of diversity, the the strength that diversity actually brings business. So even if we just are looking at looking at it from a profit standpoint, which I don't think we should be, but even if we are just looking from a profit standpoint, diversity makes huge sense in terms of who you hire, who you include, who sits around that table helping make those complex decisions. So I think people have largely woken up to that uh, and will continue to do so. We have a lot of way to go. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, improvements we can do in terms of our environment, in terms of our processes, etc. But uh, yeah, I, I think the future will continue to improve from that perspective. I'm happy to hear that. Tava, thank you so much for your time. I hope we get to have you again in the future. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series. Please also reach out. Let us know what you think and whether you'd like to contribute to Plus One podcast series.